Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is New Books in Science Fiction, and I'm your host, Rob Wolf. This is the Time Flies edition. Today we're going to talk about a book that makes excellent plot use of one of the most mind-bending features of speed of light travel, the fact that time slows the faster one moves. But The Light Years by R.W.W. Green isn't just about traveling fast. Green's debut novel is also about arranged marriages, family obligations, business ethics, and it offers a version of what life might be like for the beleaguered human race a thousand years from now. Rob Green joins me via Skype from his home in New Hampshire. Thank you so much, Rob, for coming on the show. Well, thank you, Rob, for inviting me. That was a uh, very succinct and beautiful summary of the book. Oh, well, thank you very much. And I guess this concludes our interview. Um. (laughs) How are things in New Hampshire today? Good. Cold. I took a walk a little earlier, my my afternoon walk, and uh, I, I truncated it by about a mile just because it was pretty chilly. And uh, the snow is starting to come down a little bit out there. But, you know, it's it's January. How are things in your neck of the woods? In New York City, things are okay today. It was a clear, sunny day. And... Well, as well as can be expected, I guess, given the current state of the world. But, mm-hmm. but weather-wise, it was, it was a beautiful day. Good. Since today is a bit of a mess, why don't we jump a thousand years into the future when humans are living in a distant corner of the universe? They're not on Earth anymore. So we're far in the future, but in the first chapter of The Light Years, you introduce what's really a very old custom, arranged marriage. And we meet a key character, Adam Sadiq, and he's heading to a matchmaker to sign a contract with the parents of his future wife. How did you come to write a novel about arranged marriage? That's such an interesting question. Kind of the way it worked out is uh, I was taking a shower after coming home from Boscone, which is a science fiction convention in Boston that I go to every year. And whilst I was taking that shower, a story formed in my head and I, I came out of the shower and I wrote the story and it was about a thousand words and it was called Love at the Time of Lightspeed. And it basically had all of the kind of the main ideas of the book in it. So it was one of those shower epiphanies that just kind of struck as I was, you know, lathering off the con that uh, it just all kind of came together. And I was just ruminating on time dilation and relativity and how that would re- affect relationships and you know, the whole arranged marriage thing, marriage is, is largely been a, a business transaction in a lot of cultures, and, and it may be less so. I mean, there once was a an idea that only the poor could marry for love. Everybody else had to be a bargaining chip in some kind of relationship or a business transaction, and uh, the book kind of sprung from there. 
And did you give, in your mind, uh, arranged marriage your own kind of twist? Or were you basing it on, as you say, I mean, the history of arranged marriage is one of economic or political non-love considerations, as you say. So were you trying to sort of project that same dynamic into the future? Or were you uh, adding your own twist? Probably a little bit of both. I mean, I know people who have been in arranged marriages and arranged marriages that have worked in arranged marriages that didn't work. People who have met each other just, you know, as they approach the altar for the first time. And, you know, it just seems to me one of the reasons for the arranged marriage was to increase your social status or to increase your possibility of, of wealth. And I won't say I like the idea that the future comes for everybody, but not equally. But it seems to me that there's always going to be people who have and people who don't have, and that the marriage as a social climbing opportunity is going to remain a social climbing opportunity far into the future. It's interesting, you know, uh, just before we started, we talked about the fact that we had both worked as journalists, and I actually did quite a number of years ago a story about arranged marriages here in New York City, specifically on Staten Island. And I was shocked that there were not only people who had emigrated from other countries where that is more common, but they had brought the tradition with them. And I met one young couple whose parents arranged their marriage, but they were raised here. And and it was fascinating. And it kind of opened my eyes to the fact that in their case, as best I could see, they, they seemed perfectly happy and they were glad their parents had done the research. It was interesting. It was it was not something I would have expected because I think we think of it as something archaic, but it, it gave me a new perspective. Well, I think the stats show that they they work about as often as as a as a more traditional. Well, I won't say what's what is more traditional, but an arranged marriage works about as often as a non-arranged marriage. You know, whether you pick your partner or your partner is picked through some algorithm, or just because your parents know somebody, it tends to have about the same success rate. So I'm not sure what that says. It says you got to work at a relationship, I guess, whether you yeah. whether you fall in love or it's arranged. That would be my spin. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. The surprising twist in your book is that the person that Adem is going to marry actually hasn't been born yet, and yet he plans to come back in less than a year and marry her. So can you explain how and and why that's possible? Yeah, that's where the relativity and the time dilation uh, kicks into it, because Adem lives on a ship, his family-owned trader ship, the Hajj, and it's a sublight ship, but it can travel at speeds, you know, very close to the speed of light. And as you get closer to the speed of light, time dilates for you and less time would pass for you on the ship than it would for the people on the planet you left behind. So Adam is going to make this uh, trader flight, which will take him about 18 months in his time. But while that's happening, about 26 years is going to pass by his Sako, his, his, his betrothed planet. So she'll go from not born to educated to 26 to show up at the altar waiting for him to be married while 18 months have passed for him. Okay, so I misstated that. I thought for some reason it was 10 months. That's what I remembered. But It might, it might have been 10 months, to be honest. It's been a while since I've read the book. <laughs> okay, well, uh, there, so. thereabouts. Give or take yeah. a few months. She's going to be 26. Give or take a few. Yeah. Might have been 12, yeah. So he, in fact signs this contract and it specifies, among other things, how she's to be educated. She's supposed to become an engineer and learn this very particular kind of physics, which we find out later plays out in in the plot, like why. And Mm -hmm. she also, you know, requests, well, she has to be a genius. (laughs) That's one of the things. And she has to, she has to, um, 
She doesn't have to, but I think they casually say, oh, would you like her to have any talents or interests or something? And mm-hmm. he, he just tosses off, well, maybe she could play an instrument or something. And I think that's where I, even though I had come at it having that experience of, oh, an arranged marriage. I've met people who, who have had an arranged marriage and they seem happy. But then I thought, oh, but he's made to order this woman. That something seems seems wrong with that. I mean, you're obviously challenging, I think, the reader to have feelings about that. And it's not just the reader, because your characters grapple with that, too, including Hisako herself. She really grapples with that and goes through a process of how she feels about her parents and whether it's right or not. So can you talk about why her parents or any parent might decide to enter a contract like this, even when it means their daughter doesn't get to choose what she studies or who she marries, or even that in her case, she needs to get a little gene splicing to meet the requirements of the contract. Right. Well, her parents are, are very poor. They're, they're refugees. They live in a, a part of the, of the city that is full of refugees. They have the lowest kind of jobs. Even, even the robots have been taken elsewhere to serve as a higher echelon of society than these people are, are, are being treated as. And kind of their only way to get out of this situation is to sign this contract. And it's going to allow Adam and his family to pay for Hisako's schooling, which she wouldn't otherwise have gotten. It's going to pay for a family apartment, which they wouldn't otherwise have had. And it's going to make sure that she has a life that's going to be far better than her parents. And that's also kind of an immigrant thing. You'll take a lot of risks. You'll cross the border and cross the desert and cross the ocean uh, in order to, to make sure your kids have a better chance than you do. And you don't always think about what your kids want. You just want them to have a better life than you did. And that's kind of where I was coming from with that. And yeah, I did want the reader to kind of think about it. Like, you know, would it be worth it to you if you could get a boost out of poverty to study, I don't know, basket weaving or some physics that you weren't interested in if it meant that, you know, you would have a better life, but you'd have to have this contract to be married and you'd have to study this thing that you weren't otherwise interested in. And I guess it depends on where you are in that story. If you're the mom and the dad, then, yeah, you see it as something that it would be good for your kid. If you see it as the kid, then, you know, your whole life has been stolen from you and preordained and pre-contracted. And kind of like Hisako, you'd be a little pissed about it. Yeah, it's very interesting that Hisako becomes a bridge between these two worlds. She's raised on the ground, but then she's given or contractually obliged to at least experience the life of a trader, which mm. which is a, almost a kind of immortality or something close to it. The contract requires her to stay married for two years, so she's not locked in it forever. Although mm. two years on board ship means you know her mother's going to be much older when she gets back. I, I'm going to say something like thirty years mm-hmm. older. You know she could well die, and the the world will change. But mm-hmm. it raises the perspective that the Sadiq family has on this vessel that they've owned for hundreds of years, even though it's only been a, a couple generations or a few generations because they're aging much more slowly than the, than the world. So, mm-hmm. so I guess that's a long way of my trying to get to a question about your vision of how speed of light travel affects people's attitudes towards politics and culture and society. I mean, they're gone for a few months, but when they come back, so much time has passed that all the fashion and technology and music and even mores 
I mean, there could have been a war or a revolution. And in a sense, it doesn't matter. They come back and they go, oh, that happened 30 years ago. And I wonder, what does that do to someone? I mean, do they feel it doesn't matter? Or, or maybe they see how much it does matter. Because I can imagine if you see electricity being invented and then you come back 100 years later and suddenly electricity is everywhere and people are using it, you you see how important some things are too. So I, I guess it could go either way. But I, I just wanted to explore that with you and see where your thinking has taken you. Well, there's a, a point in the book uh, where Adem is talking, and I think it's to his sister, where he talks about how he feels like a stone skipping on the water because he only is able to kind of touch down on these planets every 25 to 50 years. So, and as you're saying, all these things could pass by before he knows it, before, without even realizing it. And as such, he doesn't feel grounded in the universe. I mean, the only real world he has is the ship where his family is. And that's his, his mom is the captain. His dad is the, is the ship's doctor and his sister Lucy is the pilot. So it's, you know, truly a family affair. And, you know, his opportunity for marriage and socialization outside of that basically comes once a year or once a year for him when he lands on a planet. And by the time he's on that planet, 50 years have gone by and everybody he met the last time are, are, are old and dead and all this kind of thing. So I imagine it would make you feel very outside, very distant. There's another conversation in the in the book about these people who think of the uh, the traitors as immortals because uh, they keep coming back and they look about the same age and they are about the same age, but everybody in the planet has, has, has gotten older. So like you were saying, Hisako, for her two years, you know, two years is gonna, it seems like nothing to us. It's an associate's degree in college, but by the time she gets back to uh, her planet, if she to Gaul, if she wants to stay, if she wants to come back, fifty to a hundred years might have passed by, and everything she knows and everybody she's loved is going to be gone. And that was sort of inspired by the idea of basically anytime you leave your world, anytime you leave your your where you come from, you know, there's no telling that you're going to make it back. You know, you. You, you come to America from South America or Central America and, you know, odds are you're, you're probably saying goodbye to everything that you knew. Often being a refugee or being an immigrant is a, is a one-way trip and maybe beyond one way, there's no possibility of, no possibility at all of coming back if you are a Hisako Sasaki. Yeah, and it's interesting that on the one hand, there's something very romantic about the idea of kind of skipping through time that way. And on the other hand, not everyone wants to do it. Adam and his sister Lucy have a brother, you find out, who disembarked. And he was younger than Adam, but he died of old age a long time ago, you find out. Mm -hmm. And so what motivates someone to do something like that? I mean, it's not really explored in the book, but I just wonder why you would imagine his, his brother might have done something like that. Well, I imagine there's, I mean, there's different opportunities. You know, there's there's part of the grass is always greener thing, but there's also, you know, maybe you just don't want to be a skipping stone. Maybe you want to sink to the bottom of the water and experience what that's like. And that's also pretty much a one way trip, because by the time your family comes back, they're still the same age and you've, you're now 40 years older or 50 years older or something like that. But I, you know, I think you might, my own context, I mean, I think I would much rather be in a regular linear life than skipping around as interesting as that might be from that perspective. Think of all the things that you, you miss out on by being that, uh, that skipping stone as a you know, as opposed to being, you know, the stone or the, the blossom that blooms where it's planted. 
the family, they're pretty upright folk. They're fairly moral, you know, in their decisions, their business decisions, which I thought perhaps was informed by their panoramic view of human history. Mm. Given certain opportunities that are part of the plot, there's different family members, so different people actually make different decisions about that. But sort of the overarching tendency seems to be a little less greedy. I think even Dooley, Adem's father, says something like, the Sadiq family has never been about making money, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is an interesting choice as well, I think, for you as, uh, as the author. Well, I think you know when I'm looking at the book, you you know you are always trying to figure out who kind of the antagonist is and who who the villain of the story is. And this story has a has a villain in in the form of uh, you know uh, an uncle. But it also, when you think about it, in terms of who's really kind of pulling the strings and who's kind of manipulating things and causing things to happen, you know, the real villain might be Adam's mom, who is the she's the the one that kind of kicks all this stuff off, you know, she's the one who decides that it's time for a dem to marry. And, you know, her reasons for that happening are, are twofold or threefold or fourfold. So while she may be upright and, and honorable, she's still kind of a schemer in her own way. And she doesn't think too much about manipulating people to fit her ends, which I think is kind of interesting for that character. characters are pretty secular, I think, but there are occasional references to the Sadiq family's religion. They're Muslim. Mm -hmm. And I just wonder what role you feel religion plays in the story. I mean, a story about arranged marriage could be very much about religious ritual or religious tradition, but it's it's really not. The story is very secular. So so I wondered, just as you thought about religion and the role it plays, what, what was going through your mind? In, in my own my own perspective, I'm, I'm a very secular person anyway, so that's kind of where I come from. But it seems to me, from the family at least, that if your world is, if your if your planet's being destroyed and you're fleeing your planet, there's a lot that gets left behind. And in the Sadiq's case, they 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 left God behind. You know, they 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 were Syrian by descent, but you know, over the course of you know that first trip from Earth to the new planet probably 100 200 years passed by and they changed they, they they became more secular they you know i imagine it's hard to find evidence of god when you're fleeing the planet that he or she or it created and marriage i i think is first and foremost a civil union marriage is a is a business contract uh between two people between two families and if people opt to put the trappings of religion on, that's up to the up to the families and up to the tradition. But when it really comes down to, it's the it's the joining of two households, it's the joining of two bank accounts, and you know two sets of donkeys, and two sets of this and two sets of that. And hopefully, you're stronger uh, as a family unit than you are as a single. And you know that the marriage thing is common. It's a common trope among humanity no matter what faith tradition it comes from so the the faith is always added on afterwards i think and in this case you know we're far enough in the future and i you know i personally hope that we come to a point in time where we're not so reliant on what i would call superstition and probably the the secularity of the family uh, very much reflects my hopes and my my belief in the future what was the sound going by? It sounds like there was a, a motor or something, just to, in case people were wondering what that sound was. 
Yeah, I'm I'm in my my writing office, uh, which uh, which looks out upon the street, uh, which looks out upon a, a light. Uh, so there's some cars and trucks and automobiles going by. Fortunately, it's winter and there are no loud motorcycles. But cool. I apologize for the car. No, that's fine. It just helps to know what it was to know what. Like, are you on a a boat or on a you know a spaceship? A, maybe a spaceship. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's nice. It sounds like a great space. You yeah. see life going by when you're stuck in your writing. You look out the window and maybe you see something that jogs your imagination. Yeah, my favorite part is because it's uh, there's a traffic light out there, and I like it when people in the summertime they stop and they're singing to their radio. Uh, so I get, you know, five or seven minute or five or six second or 20 second concerts from people in their cars singing different things. And that's kind of the high point of it. I love it. I love it. Now, I don't know if you can hear the church bells. Yeah, I heard that. Yeah, it means it's it's eight o'clock here yeah. in New York. Nice. So I wanted to ask you, I saw in your acknowledgments, I mean, you you work as a teacher and you, you know, say some of the characters in the book were inspired uh, in spirit mm-hmm. by your students. And I just wonder what kind of spirit do those students have and, and how did it influence the book? Well, I, I live in New Hampshire, which is, uh, which is a, a pretty white state uh, in general. But I had the, the privilege of, of teaching down in Nashua, New Hampshire, which is, uh, by contrast, a, a very diverse city. And as a result, I, I taught public high school uh, in a very diverse public high school. So when I looked out of my classroom, it was it was everybody. You know, I had Indian kids and Pakistani kids and uh, Russian kids and, and gay kids and trans kids and non-binary kids. And, you know, I had the gamut there. And because I had that, that seemed to me such a, a wonderful a wonderful thing to have that kind of diversity of, of people and, and folk in one place that I, I also kind of cast that in my my universe as that's that's kind of what, where I think we're going. And as a result, you know, I wanted to make sure that those kids could see themselves in my future. So, you know, when I when I look at some of these characters like Adam is is bisexual, my my spouse is bisexual. A lot of the kids that I taught are bisexual, you know, that that they're just they're they're part of the they're part of the cloth. You know, they're always have been part of the cloth. And denying that they're part of the cloth is basically denying, I think, some of the most amazing parts of the human experience uh, is that that diversity and that difference in perspective that you get from working and knowing and talking to people who are not exactly like yourself. And that experience really has informed my writing since I've, you know, I, I started teaching, I guess, in about 2005, 2006. And I didn't get really serious about my fiction writing until uh, about 2010, 2012. So I already had all those adolescents crawling through my brain when the stories started coming out. And the stories started coming out looking like them, and I couldn't be happier. Oh, that's lovely. Well, what was the journey to publication for this novel? This is your first novel. You were writing short stories before. So is there, yep. is there a story to tell? I'm always interested in how, how writers make their way in the world, career-wise. Let's see. I, I wrote the short story, Love and Time of Lightspeed, and sent that out to get published. But first, I, I read it at a short story competition at the next Boscone. 
And there was an, an editor there from Tor who was the, one of the judge of the short story competition. She said that she loved the story. And if I ever turned it into a novel, that I should send it to her. So I was working on another project, but I put that project aside and, you know, immediately sat down and started banging out the light years and, you know, it took a few months to do that and sent it to her. And, you know, it took about a year for her to get back to me. And she said she didn't want it. So then I started doing the whole agent hunt and this kind of stuff, kind of, no, I wouldn't say half-heartedly, but, you know, I'm not a, a full court press kind of person. I know people who send books out to like 20 agents at a time or something like that. And I don't, I don't do that. I'll send it out to one person. And when that one agent responds, I'll send it out to another person. And as I was kind of doing that, Angry Robot Books is based in the UK and they have about once a year, they have an open call where you can send an unagented submission. So I sent it to them and 443 days after that, I get an email from their owner who said they'd like to buy the book. And then I got an agent off that contract, uh, Sarah Megabo from KT Literary. And uh, the book came out in February 2020, right? With the last, March 11th was my was my last book event before the entire world locked down. But that was kind of, so I, I kind of came out at exactly almost the wrong time, but I had a good time while I was doing it. That is astonishing. And it's so nice that Angry Robot offers that opportunity. That's really great. Yeah, it's really cool. It's really cool. Uh, and it, they just do it, you know, once once or twice every couple of years. They get a slew of different kind of things, different. I think they had like almost 1,200 and some odd the year that I sent in. And uh, I think they pulled three out of that mech mix to publish. They did something similar the next year. And it's, it is, it's a great opportunity. It's a, it's a great chance to get in. And I went to the uh, DublinCon, the World Science Fiction and Fantasy Convention in Dublin, not last year, but the year before that. And I got to meet the Angry Robot people. And they introduced me to my my, my agent, Sarah Megabo. And uh, it just, everything just kind of worked out. It was great. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, congratulations. Thank you so much. And it's a really fun and interesting book. And And thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Hey, my pleasure, Rob. It's really great to to, to meet you and talk to you, and uh, yeah, I listen to you uh, listen to your ideas. I enjoy the podcast I've heard from you, and I just downloaded the, uh, the your first book there. Oh, yeah, sweet. So I'm looking I'm looking forward to read that and check out the second one once I finish. So, well, thank you so much. I really Pretty excited about that. that. That's great. Well, I've been talking to R.W.W. Green about the light years, which came out from Angry Robot in 2020. And I thank everyone for listening. And if you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts. Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com composed our theme music. I'm Rob Wolf, author of The Alternate Universe. I edit the show. And Marshall Poe is the editor of the New Books Network. And Leanne Wilson is the network's co-editor. Stay warm, stay healthy, and happy reading.